everyone, it's Shilpi Chotre. Welcome back to People Over Plastic. In this season, we're digging deep to find the stories of everyday individuals that are tackling the mounting concern of waste, one of the most pervasive byproducts of the plastic we use every day. If you tuned into season one of our show, you know that less than 9% of plastic is recycled globally. Responsible disposal is nearly impossible, leading to a corrupt global waste trade that we rarely hear about. Illegal dumping, organized crime, black markets, and waste colonialism. Typically not the terms we hear when we think about throwing our trash in the bin. Join our crew as we take a deep dive into the incredibly complex business of waste and how it moves through communities, through our cities, through our countries, and throughout the world. We call it the Waste Mafia. Before we launch into the murky underworld of the business of waste, I wanted our listeners to understand that waste dumping takes many forms due to the different values associated with it. To understand that nuance, I couldn't think of a better person to learn from than a New York City canner. Canners view city landscapes and waste in a very different way than most people. In this episode, titled From Brooklyn to Chinatown, we're going to meet with Pierre Simmons, a passionate musician and entrepreneur who works as a canner. I was uh, working in a music again, but I wasn't happy, sure. I literally wasn't happy. I was depressed with it. I just had to get out. After a few weeks of being out of there, um, I came out my house one day because, you know, I just need to get out and take a walk. And I'm looking down at all these plastic bags filled with cans and bottles. And I'm walking from block to block and I'm saying, wait a minute, this is money. And I'm looking around. I don't care what they think. Let me go up my house to get my shopping cart. And I went and I started picking up the cans. So as I'm picking up the bottles and cans, one day I'm down by the river and it, it was like an epiphany. I had an epiphany right there walking down the street with the shop. Hey, wait a minute. I'm happy. And I stopped in the middle of the street with the shopping cart, I'm saying, I'm happy. Suddenly I felt like, you know, there was a, something lifted up off me. And that was the beginning. Pierre was born and raised in New York City with a lifelong passion in music, which was instilled in him from a young age. I wanted to know about his childhood and upbringing in such an inspiring city like New York. I was born in New York City. I lived on a 118th Street between Lenox and Fifth at that time. My parents were educated. They took me places and exposed me to things that a lot of kids in my neighborhood didn't get a chance to see. One of the things they exposed me to was good musicals. The music, for some reason, resonates with me. So my mother must have recognized that she bought me a little tiny guitar. I didn't know how to play it, but I just played this. But my godmother had a, a relative. He knew how to play it. And I would be three years old, four years old, looking at him playing my guitar. Then she bought me a little get piano. Mm. I would be at that little piano. When you walked in my house, the first thing you would see is me at the piano. 
you figure from three years old on up. And then the music that my parents listened to. You know, I was a lot of jazz. But it was that music that extracted something from your spirit that would make you cry when you heard it. You know, that's the type of music as a small child I got close to. And before you know it, as I got older, I would see a piano and start tinkling with it. But really when I got really into music was when I went to school. Went to school, I studied, you know, music in school. But there was a period in my life in my early teenage years that I went the wrong way. And I got arrested and I went to prison. While in prison, the guys there who were musicians, they were like royalty. You couldn't approach them. Okay, say we're standing in somewhere in the yard or whatever. You can't walk up to them guys and stand in their group. That's not allowed. Because they're royalty. I mean, these guys are the cream of the crop. Those guys put the boots to me. They made me read. They said, put the basketball down and leave those guys over there alone. Why did they take such an interest in you? I was in um, one of the practice rooms one day while they were doing a, 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 re a rehearsal. Something happened out there where they, they needed a bass player. So here I am sitting in the room with the upright bass and I'm practicing some etudes. Guy walked in there, he said, yo man, you play that thing? So I said, yeah. He said, come on out here. Now these are the big guys. These are guys who played around with Thelonious Monk. And they, they, they looked at me suspiciously because I was a young kid. I was, I was 20. So I began playing with them. And they said, hey, wait a minute. This kid is not like them kids out there. You walk into their classroom, because you got to remember, these guys are inmates. They don't mm -hmm. play around. Mm -hmm. They had to have notebook, pencil, and they, they demanded good behavior. So little did I know that I was going to be pulled in all the way. They loved me, but they disciplined me. They didn't let me get away with nothing. If I hadn't went through that with those guys, I wouldn't be how I am today. How long was that experience when you were in prison with them? You know, I had 12 years. It seems like God was with me the whole time. He put me with the right people. And they all had one thing in common. They knew how to act and speak like human beings and not like a bunch of wild people. Books. They threw books, tons of books, theology, history, and music theory. Sounds like you had some angels with you throughout your life. And I think it's so important for our listeners to understand you are all of these other things first before you're a canner, especially because the music piece is so in the heart and the soul of who you are as an entrepreneur. 
You walk down the street, you see there's a can laying on the street. Now, most people will just see a can, but they don't recognize, they don't attach a value to that can. I live in a city with maybe, what, 9 million people? How many cans and bottles are out there? So I began to think, wait a minute. Do you know how much money is just laying on the street? It's just that you have to get it. Tell me about, like, a typical day. Like, how early do you wake up? When do you go out? I might say, well, today I want to get up. I want to go out at 5 o'clock. I want to work from 5 to 10, then I'm going to stop. Cash it in. Now I'm through for the day. Now maybe I might want to go out again. I just feel good. So I'll go out again and say, like, say from 11 to 3. Won't get back too late. Do you have, like, a canning outfit that you wear? We have a vest and you got an ID card on. Now, I'm experienced enough to know how to get out there at any time. I can get out of here at 6 o'clock at night and make money. Sometime I'm in the house and, and I says, well, well, let me run out to the store. But when I go out to the store, I take a bag when you say cans, is it always metal cans? It's a combination. Listen, people are paying their rents with it. I was surprised to learn that people could actually pay for their rent and living expenses in a city like New York. Pierre also explained the importance of canning for immigrant families in particular. They even send some of their money to their families back home. Like there was a, there was a Chinese lady. She would get there like a little after five in the morning. She would already get their show with three giant plastic bags. She walked from Chinatown in Manhattan every day. She would get the show weekend. When six o'clock came, they would open up for us to go get our shopping carts that we had stashed there. She would Take those three big bags, put it into a storage bin, then take her big shopping cart out. So by 10 after 6, she's out the door. About 2 or 2.30, she's back. Dumps this load out. Every day, this woman came back with $100 or more. The ones who are actually canning, that's what they're using to pay their rent because some of them are immigrants, so it's essential. So you may be wondering, what happens to the cans after they've been collected? Well, canners bring these cans to what is known as a redemption center in exchange for cash. And in Pierre's case, he takes them to Sure We Can, a nonprofit recycling center that's also like a second home for the canning community. It's located in the middle of Bushwick, a borough of Brooklyn that's heavily gentrified, yet there's still an economically diverse crowd that crosses paths, from tech workers to bankers, and even artists. The Sure We Can community includes people from more than 20 countries. Most of them lack access to other job alternatives, and many do not speak English. As you're approaching Sure We Can, you immediately notice the gigantic colorful mural with the slogan, where everyone counts, and the smell of cans with leftover beer and other liquids. When I went there, and so sure we can for the first time. I seen Anna on the high low. She's a nun. 
She's the soul. She and a guy named Eugene was the one that started it up. When I got there, I knew it was something different about it because they gave food. When I say food, I'm not talking about those pre-cooked meals. I'm talking about real cooked food. She was giving that out. And I knew right then, this place is for me. And how do you explain a redemption center to somebody that may not know what that is? A redemption center is a place where you take your cans and your bottles or whatever, and you sort them out if you want the most money from them. See, because when you go to a machine, you're only going to get five cents for each container. When you go to a redemption center, if you sort out everything by brand name, you put them in the crates, if it's bottles, if you just throw all bottles into a crate without sorting them, now you still can get paid for that, but you're only going to get five cents, like the machines. Mm Currently, New York City canners like Pierre are under threat of getting their livelihoods taken away from government officials. What's so infuriating is that these officials have no sense of the essential role canners play for the environment and to the economy of the city. Right now, I'm so pissed off at the politicians here in New York. Not only the politicians, but some of these people who are involved with these big organizations that do recycle. Canners are workers. Well, who's trying to take from you and what are they trying to take? Well, they made contracts with, the, I think, the city or whatever. You know, you, you have the governor involved and a lot of politicians and we, we dealt with them. I found that the best way to deal with these people, you got to come at them with fire. Those people have to be confronted. Why can't they just leave you alone? I don't understand. Don't they have enough materials to work with? They want the money. They don't want anybody else. I wanted to dig deeper on what this would actually mean for the city. If the local government could feasibly do the work that canners do, which is literally the backbone of the informal recycling economy. They they, they wouldn't be able to do it. They can't do it. But see, here in New York, once you put your bottles and stuff in a bag and place it on the sidewalk, it no longer belongs to you anymore. It belongs to the city. Like say you have a car. And you out there late at night and you, you, you going in these bags and you're taking out the cans and putting it in bags in your van or in your car. The police catch you. They can, they can arrest you. Because it's the property of the city? Right. You know, they, they, don't, they don't care. My strategy is that I want the names of the people who are uh, opposing us to confront them. Because I've, I've confronted politicians in the past, very fiery, passionately. Hear this. The canning community is composed of an economically diverse group of people, many of whom are people of color and from the immigrant community. Canning is their primary source of income. And by proposing tighter regulations, the local government risks completely cutting off their livelihoods. I want them to explain to the yes. children and the people in the countries that they depend on, these people to send them, why you want to take this away from them? And then they went so far as to have signs put up on the sides of buses and buildings showing a can of going into a bag on the sidewalk, and then they said, this is steel. So they're painting you in this negative shady light, even though you're doing an essential service. 
They can't do it. I'm talking about somebody who's out there six o'clock in the morning and you have these elderly, which I'm very concerned about them, out three o'clock in the morning. People in their 80s picking up bottles and cans. You see, taking that away hurts them because mm-hmm. some of them are on their, uh, how do you say their SSI or Social Security? And this canning is a supplement to what they get. And the fact that you see them consistently, you know that they're serious about doing this. Through my work, I have some idea of the value associated with plastic, glass, and metal, but I didn't know what the reality of what it's like finding cash in what most people consider waste. How much cash are we really talking about here? Say if I use a small shopping cart, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to get me a full tray of glass. I'm going to get me a giant bag of plastic and a bag of cans. I know how much that will bring because of the size of the two bags. I know that two big bags and a full tray, normally it's going to bring me this. I want more. I know that five bags and the glass will bring me close to 50. And how much do the two bags generally bring you? Well, one time I took one bag of plastic. Now, I'm not talking about the cans and I'm not talking about the glass. That's all in the car. Just the plastic alone was $31. Every canner has their own strategy on the different routes they take, the neighborhoods they work in, the number of hours they put in, time of day or night, and even the partnerships they seek out. Like with grocers and retailers, it's sort of like their IP. I was actually going to ask you, with the cost of living in New York going up, it also it makes sense to increase the value, right? Okay. Yes, it does. Because, I, you know, you go to the supermarket here now, I'm looking at steaks, $35, $39, $40 for steak that I used to pay $2.75 for when I was a kid. I don't think we have those prices quite like that in Oakland, but that's crazy. I just went the other, the other day, man, spent $72 and came with two little bags. Like canners, community recycling advocates are also pushing for new ways to recover bottles, similar to redemption centers like Sure We Can, which are proven to increase recycling and reduce litter. Glass bottles and aluminum cans in particular are made of nature's valuable resources, and we need systems in place that keep them from being wasted. This is a good time to mention this. Here's where improved legislation on something called bottle bills come in. To support the environment and the community, these bills need to be thoughtfully designed with input from canners who are an integral part of their success. We're going through something now where they want to raise from five cents to 10 cents. I heard about that. So that would be great, right? Oh, yeah. That would double some of the income that you're generating. For everybody. And but, but, but the new bottle bill law that we have here, the things in it that would benefit everybody, they're like excluding us. And we say, how are you going to do this? Yeah, you're the ones that really carry the backbone of this infrastructure forward. With this sort of stakeholder group aside, these politicians, do you think that your work is appreciated by everyday people? Unless they've been informed by someone who knows what's yeah. really happening because the, the the very conversation of global warming i have not found people yet who really understand what's going on there i mean you could talk to them all day but they're they're in a fog about global warming so they can't really appreciate what we do 
What I found so fascinating about Pierre is how his two biggest interests are weaved together. Music taught him many things, and now it's an integral part of his life as a canner. The one thing I've come to understand about music, about canning, is who are you in it? Who are you? If I'm going to be practicing this music, who am I practicing to be like? I have to find who I am. What do I hear? What do I see in life? How do I feel? You have to really be honest with you. And just like canning, you know, you're, you're wondering, oh, gee, am I allowed to go down that block? Because I see, you know, you think things like that. But as you get experienced, then you realize that canning isn't just canning anymore. There are little things, little tiny things that a person starting wouldn't know. One of the things I've come to say, if you're going to do this canning, be for real about it. There is opportunity. You'll never be broke. Behind Pierre's passion for canning, there's also a deep concern for our environment, our planet, and our future. I think that in the end, there is just no way it's not going to come back and bite us. How many times have we heard, hey, you know, we're, we're second away from doomsday. And yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And it's business as usual, right back to the same nonsense. We haven't done anything. We're playing Russian roulette, and I think that it's just a matter of time, and maybe soon that we're going to get hit. The earth is, is warning us, hey, man, I'm trying to sustain you, but you're not helping me. And that's all the time we have for today's show. Thanks again to Pierre for opening up the fascinating world of canning to all of us. You can learn more about his work in our show notes. From Brooklyn to Chinatown was produced by Miguel Estudio. So what happens to all the trash that isn't picked up for cash? The trash that is so low value that it's worth nothing or considered so hazardous that no one wants to touch it. We're going to share some incredible stories from the fearless individuals that are making sure their community isn't the next dumping ground. Stay tuned for episode two, dropping soon. If you like what you hear, please follow and share this podcast with your friends. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at PeopleXPlastic.